just commemorated Martin Luther King Jr. Day on Monday. Today on Let Me Be Frank, His Excellency is joined by Father Reggie Norman, pastor of Our Lady of Fatima in Wilton, Connecticut, and vicar of the Apostolate of Black Catholics in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Together, they'll reflect on race, racial justice, and the state of things in the diocese and in the country. Keep it here on your radio at 1350 AM or at 103.9 FM or using the Veritas mobile app on your phone. If you don't have the app and you're looking for the app, it is easy to get. Just go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. And while you're online, be sure to check foundationsinfaith.org. They are our sponsors of Let Me Be Frank. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. All right, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Great to yeah. see you. <laughs> yes, let's hope today we record correctly. Because yeah. you had that problem last time, huh? Yes. Yep. Last week we had a problem. We replayed, which was a great episode that we replayed, the, the COVID and the traditional Latin Mass episode. But we don't want to lose uh, Yeah. We don't want to lose was, our recording. Yeah. yeah, not at all. So, anyway. Especially today, since we are joined by Father Reggie Norman, who many of our listeners already know, but... Let me introduce him uh, quickly. Father Reggie Norman was born in Durham, North Carolina, grew up here in Stratford, Connecticut. Father was raised a Baptist, but converted in 1990 and entered the Catholic Church alongside his mother. And Father Reggie was ordained to the priesthood on May 16th, 2009. And he is now the pastor of Our Lady of Fatima in Wilton and the vicar of the Apostolate of Black Catholics for the Diocese of Bridgeport. Father Reggie is also the Dean for the Seal of Wisdom, I'm sorry, Seat of Wisdom Deanery, and the Chair of the Priest Advisory Committee. If I could talk. (laughs) Um, And as someone who has gone to Our Lady of Fatima in the past for Mass, I can tell you that Father Reggie also gives a no-nonsense homily. So we are very happy to have you here with us uh, on Let Me Be Frank today, Father Reggie. It is my privilege and honor to be in such good company, and I'm willing to learn today. That's the great, greatest part about this radio I show. I've listened to it before, and it's good entertainment, but also you learn a lot. So thank you for continuing the work you do at Veritas. Well, Father Reggie, first of all, I'm delighted you're here. And I have to add one more qualification to the long list that's well-deserved. And that is, among the pastors of our diocese, I think Father Reggie is one of the most committed to working with young people and young adults. Like, for example, I marvel at the fact that when your parishioners go off to college, when they come back for break, you always make it your business to to meet up with just about as many as you can. Right. And I think that's tremendous. Oh, we have to stay in their lives as much as we can. And it's good for me, too, because it's um, very humbling. Mm -hmm. They will tell us things they won't tell their parents and they'll call you from college. And that's a great relationship to have of trust. But sometimes you hear the boyfriend stories, the girlfriend stories. But then when you marry them, it is just the beautifulest gift ever. You get to feel like you're really part of it. So I'm truly blessed. And, you know, Catholic education is important, whether you're in a Catholic school or not. And so we have to really everyone says our children are our future. They are present. Let's make them a priority. I love our kids. I was just at mass this morning with our kids and they never cease to amaze me what they say, what they think. (laughs) Oh, that's politely said. I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. But now, Father Reggie, we all, uh, every time someone comes on the podcast, my very first question is always the same. Tell us your life journey of faith. My life journey of faith is one of those that you know God has a sense of humor, but you know that he's in control. Mm-hmm. Um 
everything that you could say is probably out there. My mother was a single mother raising me and my father wasn't in my life. And we come from a strong Baptist roots on my paternal side of the family. My grandfather, four uncles and seven cousins are all Southern Baptist preachers. So we grew up in that tradition. And as a kid, the Baptist churches, you learn the Bible, but you learn endurance because you sit in church on Sundays from nine o'clock to three o'clock some days. And it was tough, but, um, you go and the nice thing about it is you don't have a choice. It's not an option. It's a mandate. And there's some simplicity to that, but there's something important because unlike our kids who have a choice, you do learn a lot. But I, I didn't fall out of love with it. I just wasn't having the questions answered that I needed answered. And growing up, we were always told, stay away from the Catholic Church. It's this, it's that, it's that. And ironically, when I went to college, well, I should back up. When I was in Stratford working EMS, unbeknownst to me, one of my um, partners was a Catholic priest. I only knew him as Dan, but later I found out he was Father Dan. He was at St. James, and that just blew me away because he was this normal guy. So that was stereotype number one gone. But when I went off to college, my roommate from college is first-generation Italian. You go to church every Sunday, no matter what. I'd go to his house on his weekend, and his sweet mother, God rest her soul, she would wake us up. It didn't matter how late we were out. You're going to church, and I'm not Catholic, Mrs. Disson. You're going to church if you're in my house. So I had to go to church every Sunday. And then when we went back to school, you know, it's a big habit at UConn. Sunday night, they had a 10 p.m. mass. If he didn't go to mass, he had to go. And he was like, well, come to church with me. I'm like, why am I going to church with you? I can be studying. I'll go to the bar with you after I'll buy the first round. And he kind of lured me into going with him. And lo and behold, when I say the Lord acts in mysterious ways, I was like all of a sudden mesmerized and in love. And I started asking Father Dan questions and I had tons of tons of questions. And then it was a local priest, Father Tom Lynch, who's retired. He, you know, he met me. I went in to meet him because Father Dan said, go meet him. And he's like, you should become a priest. And I'm like, uh, no, the church isn't ready for me. And Father Tom and his humor said, you think they were ready for me? And I'm like, whoa, but he was right. <laughs> and he did something amazing. He didn't drill me. He didn't pressure me. He just showed me compassion and love. He always had time for me. So I started going to church more and more. And then my mother goes, the little heathens going to church. I have to check this out to see what's going on. And we had long conversations about it. And I said, mom, I really think I want to join. And we did. We went into the church together. My um, DRE is still active. I'm still friends with her. And we went in way back when. And Father Tom was smart, too, because that old piece of RCI that's missing, the Mystagogia stage, he goes, oh, no, 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 you're not done. Our first week in church, he goes, you know, my lector didn't show up. I'm commissioning you. You're the lector today. I'm like, what? Just read. You'll be fine. And he slowly and subtly pushed me into everything. And the next thing you know, I'm a lector. The next thing you know, I'm an acolyte. The next thing you know, you're on this council. You're on this council. And all of a sudden, it was like everything in my life that I had been searching for and looking for it seemed to make sense. It all made sense. Everything was falling in place. But I was a person of the world. I had a beautiful condo, a great job making money. And if you're going to be a priest, I'm like, no, I'm not becoming a priest. I like my life. Well, the funny thing is I was, you know, discerning it. And I said, well, maybe I'll become a deacon because I can have my life and have it all. And God's sense of humor, everything that I thought I loved about my life slowly changed. We, I lived in a beautiful condo. They started cutting trees, noisy neighbors. Like, I can't live here anymore. Corporate America was going crazy. They were embezzling, doing crazy things. And I was already in the diaconate process. And then the Lord moves again. Um, Bishop Laurie said, well, Monsignor Sanders wants to retire. So you're going to be the apostolate director. I wasn't even ordained as a deacon when he did that. And then upon my um, ordination to diaconate, he goes, I really need you at Blessed Sacrament. They're in trouble. You know them. Let's do some work there. And I actually took a leap of faith and left my full-time job. And I went to work as Blessed Sacrament as administrator with all my business experience and my worldliness. And God, since he came and goes, you know nothing. You don't know what you're prepared for. And that's where I learned the power of prayer. Because when I went there, what I thought was there and what was there, you just saw it all. I mean, it was, I don't want to say frightening, but it was a bad situation. We were bleeding. The rectory, the office, the windows were torn apart. The roof was leaking. Every problem you could have was there. But amazingly, that's where God turns around on you. Every problem I had, there was a solution there based upon my previous experience. When I worked on Wall Street, I knew investment. I knew how to get money. I worked in um, home improvement. So I knew how to, so all of those things came into being. And I was there working harder than I think I ever worked, but loving it. I, my mother would say, you're there at six in the morning. You don't go home at 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I'm loving it. 
And Bishop Laurie said, keep discerning, keep discerning. So I went to him on Halloween. I'll remember, never forget. And I said, hey, Bishop, trick or treat. He goes, Reggie, bad day. I don't want to, no jokes as well. The treat is, I think I'm ready to go to seminary. And he was happy. So that started. So I got ordained in June, was at Blessed Sacrament in July, spoke to him in August. Um, October, he had me at Fisher for a semester that spring, and I started seminary the following fall. And then he said, stay close to Blessed Sacrament. My last year of seminary, I had the opportunity to come home and still administer the parish. And on ordination, I was assigned there. So God's sense of humor, and he knows it's a matter of us getting out of his way. It's it's a tremendous story, and 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 it, you know what, Father Reggie, it proves the premise that everything that happens to us in God's plan is a preparation for what He wants us to do. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. The, the mission He said. How long were you at Blessed Sacrament? Altogether, I was there from 2006 to 2013, so seven years there. Wow. So I just realized I've now been at Fatima longer than I was there, and that shocked me that the time went so quickly. Oh, yeah, it does well. Yeah, as, as Steve and I have chatted. I'm in my ninth year, and it seems like it's a day. It's just the time goes by so fast, right? So um, so you are a busy man. You are involved in a lot of different stuff. And you and I and the other vicars work together um, for to serve those communities um, the that form the diversity of our diocese, right? And to you is given the ministry to serve Black Catholics. So tell us what the, what is what does that look like? What does that entail? What are your concerns? What are your goals? Really, it, it's an open ended question. Well, I think there's a little bit of history there. There's a little bit of future there, but there's a lot of hope there. If you go back to even our diocese in the 60s, a lot of Black Catholics weren't welcome in the mainstream church. They had to worship in basements and other places. And that's how the apostolate started. And our job, and it's a little more difficult for us because we speak English. So language is not our barrier, but culturally, the way that we would ideally celebrate our mass, that was one of the great things about Vatican II because it allowed it because we have a lot of black people and African people who come from cultures who celebrate differently and to be able to express those cultural differences while serving God in the Catholic church is so powerful. And my job is to facilitate that, but I'm also realizing it's also to go out beyond our borders. It would be very easy to say 1130 on Sunday, we're at Blessed Sacrament with a gospel choir, we're going to do that. But what we realize is there are a lot of Black Catholics who are outside of that parish and don't necessarily worship there, mm -hmm. but would like to come together for some of the feast days like Dr. King, Kwanzaa, Black History Month, Black Catholic History Month, Feast of, you know, Pierre Toussaint and all those other things. So now we're re-strategizing and reaching out to them. And the other piece that's important, and a lot of people don't see it, is to re-evangelize those who have left the church for various reasons. And we've had some success with that, but we need to do a better job with that. And then culturally, there are things that affect us as Black Americans who happen to be Catholic that we have to address as well. I've been working behind the scenes with a group of lawyers to help expunge the records of a lot of our Black people, especially with the legalization of marijuana. There are a lot of people who have felonies and other criminal records that if they're cleared up, they would have a better life. But ultimately, our job as vicars is the same for all of us. It's to bring people of faith together to celebrate and to be part of that big church. It's not little individual silos, but one big church that may celebrate differently, may look differently, but one God serving us all. And I think I said this to you, Steve, the last time I was on, America has this reputation of being this great melting pot. And that's not actually true because we have never defined what it is to be American. What I always say is from our roots is we're a great big pot of gumbo. It takes all the ingredients to make it taste good, but they can still stand on their own, but together they make a dynamic gift. And I think that's our other job is to show the non-Black Catholics what it is we do and why we do it. Because there are a lot of things that we can offer the church that they don't even know exist and the history behind it. One of my favorites is I always tell people when I get down or I'm in a bad mood, 
first thing I do is punch on some gospel music and that will lift me immediately. But gospel music has a history all the way back to the slaves. That's how they endured and they got over. It's through that love of music that was soothing the soul and telling you that there's a better way. And all of the gospel music, even back then in slavery, led them to a higher belief in God and God's plan is in action. Don't give up hope. And I think that's why we've survived so long in some of the most difficult times, but we've never given up hope. And that's one of the greatest things I love about the Black community. No matter the adversity, there's always hope somewhere. We just have to tap into it. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you raised, well, you raised many points that I want to, 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 to uh, explore with you, but one in particular to start. When we speak of, for example, the other communities, the ethnic communities, right, um, like the Hispanics, mm-hmm. we know there's a big variety. This, they come from 24, 25, 26 different countries, different cultures, different uh, traditions, customs, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when we speak of black Catholics, you said there's a variety, right? Yes. So for the average person who may not know, wh- what is some of that variety that you see from your some view? Of the, some of the variety that I see, and this would shock people. First and foremost, we have a large Cape Verdean population here in the diocese, and Cape Verde is in Africa island off of Africa that speaks Portuguese. Most people don't realize that. We also have many African nations, whether it be Nigerian, we have um, the Haitians do their own thing, but this is the one that would shock everyone. And I don't mean to separate it that way, but there is a difference if you're a raised Northern black person versus a Southern black person, Midwest, or even down in that New Orleans area, there are so many differences within the the culture itself. And I've been blessed to see that as I travel the country and there are different, I don't wanna say levels of blackness, but different views. And I think a lot of people, and it's one of the misconceptions about it, they label us by our skin and they just put us all together. But the reality of it is when you say black, you are really talking about um, a really mixed pot because if you go down to New Orleans and Creole, there's a lot of French and other things in there. When you go up to Chicago, there are a lot of slaves who you know, migrated north. When you come in the Northeast, you could get anything from migration, but there's another piece that people don't even realize. And I myself am a part of that. I have a large part of Native American in me as well. Mm-hmm. So when you start mixing it up, it, mm-hmm. it is so varied. And regionally, we also act differently. Like I'm amazed at my Southern relatives, how they think versus how we think in the Northeast. So I think our um, our culture has been really influenced by our geography as well. Yeah, that, that, see, that's fascinating. I, I myself did not have a, a deep appreciation of that. But listening to you, working with you all these years, I've, I've become to understand it. But prior to that, I would have also made the same mistake in some ways. Interesting. Uh, among other certain ethnic groups, um, there is continued immigration. So among Black Catholics, is there still immigration, let's say, from countries in Africa to the United States or to our neck of the woods in particular? Yeah. Um, the the Igbo community that was celebrating at the diocese, they were huge at one while and they're still coming. What's happening with the black community more so than others is you assimilate to where you live versus traveling somewhere. So I'm sure as you travel the diocese, you see pockets of black people everywhere you go, right. Absolutely. but you can't label them into one group because there's so many. And it's quite interesting when you see that happening. And it also shows how diverse our diocese is. Depending on where you'll go, you'll see pockets of um, Nigerians. There's pockets of Kenyans. I know some places they're Gambians. So that the diaspora is well represented here in our diocese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, for uh, uh, American Black Catholics, mm-hmm. right, who are here, maybe say three or four generations, mm-hmm. right, um, talk to me about their experience, particularly being both Black and Catholic. That is the group that I worry about the most. They're the ones who are leaving the quickest. Their children aren't being raised in the faith, even though it's deep in them. And that's the group that I think is hurting the most. And the reason I say they're hurting the most is because all of these other ethnicities, be it Haitian, be it Nigerian or whatever, they come and they benefit from the beauty of America. And they don't realize what these ancestors who've gone through civil rights and Mm -hmm. other moments have gone through to allow them to come. Because if it were the 60s, they would not have come. And a lot of times what happens, even within what we would um, call black community, there are divisions in their things. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget, I had a African priest with me and he says, I don't know why the Americans don't like me. 
what is their problem? They've got everything. And I'm like, whoa, slow down. You really don't know them and know us. And, and I tried to explain that to him and he just didn't grasp that concept. And he even had some of the students, well, they're lazy, they're on welfare and all of that stuff. I'm like, please don't think and say that. These things have happened for a reason that you don't have privy to the history of. But there's another um, community I shy to tell you, but I should tell you anyway, within the black community, and it goes across a large portion of it, and they're the two black people that can be looking at you and look as one, because a lot of black people will act differently when they're amongst themselves and ourselves and when they're in public. And that is one of the most perplexing things. If you ever saw the movie, um, The Butler, Lee Daniels, The Butler, Mm -hmm. and he had a beautiful phrase in there. There's the face that we show them and there's the face that we know. And that is an assimilation tactic because they've had to survive. So they never said things publicly that they felt. And at first I didn't understand it until I was at Blessed Sacrament. We had a meeting, multicultural, lots of people. And our people sat there, they smiled and they seemed happy. They didn't say much. And if you thought on the surface, they agreed you'd be wrong because after everyone left and the real meeting went down, we felt and we heard how they really felt. And I said to him, well, why don't you express it while you're in the meeting? Oh, no, no, no. Why cause the trouble? They're going to do what they want to do anyway. I'm just trying to survive and get the most out of this that I can. And to me, that was baffling because I wasn't raised that way. But the more I was around and understood that, that is still persistent. And I did go speak to my mother because my mother was raised in the South and she came to Connecticut in 1967 with me. And she told me the most amazing story in the world. And I was shocked. She goes, I went to work at the telephone company. And do you know, for my first year there, I wouldn't look a white person in the face. I'm like what? She goes, yeah, that's what I was taught in the South. I don't. And she goes, I don't remember who told me that I could, but someone had to actually give her permission to do that because that's how she was trained. And it affected how she talked and everything that she did. And it wasn't until she broke that stereotype and that mold that she could prosper and grow on to be who she was. And a lot of people live under that umbrella and that still suppressed identity. So so then, Father Reggie, would it be fair to say that that's all of the effects, subtle at times and other times overt, of, of, of the racism that has marked American culture, American society. Absolutely. And that's why I said regionally, you see differences of it. We are very blessed to be here in the North because in the Northeast, there's racism, but it's very discreet and very subtle. You can go about doing your business and have all of the rights. If someone feels something about you, they may not tell you, they'll say it behind your back or they'll say something to you. There are other parts of this country where it is not it is not subtle at all. It is right there directly in your face. And I think people need to understand that because when we look at the news, we're looking at things that are happening in other parts of the country with no idea whatsoever why they're happening. But when you've lived in this oppressed, silent nature for so long, at some point, every pressure point has been pushed and it just explodes in ways that we right. we don't understand. But going with their history, they do understand right. it. And that has been the history in a lot of these places. Right. You know, it's interesting. It's we, we need to break this topic open, the question mm-hmm. of racism, because it's certainly it's it's of burning importance. It's in the news all the time. I think there's lots of different voices talking about it. And the church has a voice, right, to talk about it, too. And sometimes the church's voice gets drowned out by everything else that's going on. So for, for starters, um, tell us um, from your perspective, the, the church's voice on the sin of racism. Um, how would, if you, if, if I were a person who had never heard it, how would you, how would you explain it to the average person, the sin of racism? The sin of racism goes so diametrically opposed to God because God said, love one another as I've loved you. And when we die, we didn't say that there's a black heaven, a white heaven, there's but one heaven and there's one God. And yet we operate here on earth as if we're separate and there are different things. God loves all of his children. And we forget that. I've often said that if we would learn to operate on a level of commonality where we're all God's children and forget everything else, we'd be a much better people. But as far as the church goes, the church is in a hard position because no matter what the church does, it's going to hurt someone in someone's mind because we as humans have developed this thing. If you're not doing what I want you to do, you're wrong. And the problem with it is the voices that we're hearing are usually the voices on the extremes on either side of it. And the moderate voices in the middle aren't being heard, but even more so they're being silenced. And those are the voices that we need to 
have heard. So a lot of people have been silenced and that breaks my heart because we're never gonna move forward if the people who need to speak and explain are silenced. But the other thing that has to happen is there's a overt need for respect. I wouldn't say that I agree with you 100% of the time, Bishop, but I still have to listen and understand. And at times I may disagree with you. As you explain where you're coming from, now you've opened me up to see where I may have been shortcoming or where you're coming from and it all makes sense. We're not doing that at all. And that's the fear that I have. The wrong voices are speaking and the voices that need to be heard aren't being heard. As far as the church goes, people forget that when Dr. King marched, look at those pictures. There were white Catholic priests marching side by side with him. And a lot of the social justice of all of that legislation came through because of the Catholic church. Because remember something, you can't get something you don't have by just saying you want it. The person oppressing you has to give it to you. And it was through the pressure of the Catholic church in our good standing that we pressured some of those legislatures to do the right thing. So we have a long history with it. The difficulty is now we are split in so many directions. We can't fight 300 fights at once. We're, we forget a two front war. We're fighting a 300 point war. Right. And that's the hard part. And right. as a bishop, and I've had this conversation with you first, when the media comes out with it, you don't know what's true and what's not true. It's all slanted. And if you make the wrong statement, you're going to be crucified and labeled forever. And that's not fair to you. So sometimes they say, well, he's silent on it. Well, no, I think he's waiting for all of the information to come out so that we can make an educated right. decision. And the other thing that no one can deny is the church has said, racism is wrong. We've said it, we've preached it, and we've hopefully lived it. Now, can we do a better job? Of course, because where we have individuals and man acting upon as man and not God acting, we're going to have, we are humans, we're flawed, and we bring those flaws into it. And unfortunately, those flaws get exploited, right. and we don't see the true nature. Without a doubt, without a doubt. In the end, I think um, you, you make a, a, an excellent point we we need to speak clearly and we need to speak unequivocally about the sin of racism. Mm. And sometimes fewer words are better. Just say what you got to say and just move on. Because when you try to equivocate or you try to, you know, explain or not explain, but you try to, um, and appease is not the right word, but to, to say it in such a way that you're not going to offend people. Well, you know what? Jesus offended people, didn't he? It is absolutely, absolutely. He, he said what he had to say, and people walked away. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. That's ah. right. So we got to say what we have to say. We have to say clearly. We have to say with mercy, but we got to say clearly. You know, when we come back from the break, I just want to share one story. I want to get your reaction to the story on how racism can be very subtle. And even unbeknownst to a person who is trying to really live a good Christian life can still be subject and actually be involved with it and not know it. Absolutely. This, this is such an important uh, conversation that we're having. You're listening to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking today with Father Reggie Norman, who is the pastor of Our Lady of Fatima Parish in Wilton, Connecticut and the Vicar of the Apostolate of Black Catholics here in our diocese. We will be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. 
The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, His Excellency is having a very important conversation. Uh, Monday, two days ago, was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, His Excellency is speaking with Father Reggie Norman, who is a pastor of Our Lady of Fatima Parish here in Wilton, Connecticut, and also the Vicar of the Apostle of Black Catholics for the Diocese of Bridgeport. Um, Excellency, you were asking, Father, about uh, subtle racism. Yeah, it's a story that happened in my own life. And Father Reggie, I'm curious to see what you what you think. I recently gave a talk to a group of high school faculty. And um, I was speaking about the power of the Holy Spirit. And I used a phrase that I have used in my confirmation homilies, in some of the confirmation homilies I've given. And that how does the Holy Spirit, you know, change you, transform you? And I spoke about the eyes and the ears and how he empowers your hands and your heart and all the rest. And when I spoke about the eyes... I use the line that I've used before that says the Holy Spirit, the light of the Holy Spirit will allow you to see what the world is blind to and become blind to what the world considers to be important, which is not. And I use, for example, the question of the color of our skin, that to become blind to it, that it would make no difference. And there was a a very lovely, dedicated, very intelligent, very bright member of the faculty Uh, and a devout person who who is a person of color who said to me, Bishop, I understand what you mean, but the way you described it is not helpful at all. Because I do not want you to be blind when you look upon someone's skin color. I want you to see the skin, skin color and it make no difference. And I thought, oh my. And, and, it, it caused me tremendous reflection because, again, from my point of view, I was trying to express what, what she understood me to say, but my language was poor. And that can be a subtle way of living in a world that, where racism is subtle, but there. Does that make sense? Do you have any reaction to that? It makes absolute sense. And I love that person, even though I don't know them, because she did something in that conversation that I wish more people would do. She didn't call you a racist. She just said it can be perceived this way. And your intentions, if anyone knows you, knows that that was never your intent for it to come off that way. It's just a different choice of words. But that's what I was talking to about, about having that dialogue. If you don't have that dialogue and have the understanding, I tell people all the time, you can say anything you want to me. And if I don't agree with it, I'll tell you why. And hopefully we move from it. But there are a lot of little things like that. And the problem that I see happening, and it works both ways, if you say certain words to certain black people, they automatically label you a racist, even though you may not know that those words are offensive. Like one of the things that comes up all the time when you hear you people that says you're subjugating me to a lower class and I'm not a sheep and all of that stuff. But there are other words, too, like the word picnic. A lot of southern black people will never go to a picnic because during the time of lynching, they use that word in a derogatory term. Pick a you know what from a tree. We're going to a picnic. So that's what it reminds of. You did not know that. I know you didn't know that. But so suppose you're in the South and you say, I'm going to a picnic. Someone could falsely label you as racist, although you had no intention. And that's why I said we have to educate ourselves better and have those dialogues. It's not how can you offend me or be saying something racist if you don't know what it is you're saying and what impact it has on me? And we as people of color have got to do a better job of educating people to the things that bother us. We have to stop clamming up and educate people like, you know, you might not want to say that because certain people would be offended by that. Now, if you mess up and you said it again, I'm not going to get on the radio and say, you know, I was with Bishop this day and he said that word and I told him not to say so he's a racist because it's something that's become so enculturated in us that we don't even know that it exists. So that's why I said we have to talk and educate each other. And, you know, again, regional differences have an impact on it, huge impact on that. Right, right. And and the uh, like another example uh, of how subtle the sin of racism can affect institutions, the way society operates. I'm just going to throw one idea out. The whole idea of networking. When you go to school, right, when we're young, 
All right. Part of the way a person could get into a, a position of employment is not simply, ideally, it would only be your ability, your grades, but there's also a networking piece to it, right? Absolutely. You know, a person who, right? So there are people who have advantage in networking, and some of that advantage is based on wealth, some of that is based on race, some of that is based as even geography. And there's, and there's not a clear appreciation of the fact when people say, well, okay, well, then we're going to make, you know, everybody has an opportunity for education. So, so what is the big deal? Well, because the subtle, more hidden, invisible effects of racism that are, you can't put your finger on it like this clearly, nonetheless, continue to create blocks, right? And networking is one of them. Yeah, I think it was um, the psychologist, um, Robin DeAngelis, she's done a lot of work and she labeled it institutional racism that we don't even know that we're a part of it, but we are a part of it because it's just built into the system the way the system operates. And one of the, and I can tell you personally, I've experienced it when I was in corporate America, I was in sales. I was a senior sales manager managing the government division. We had education, higher, lower, government, corporate, and all the sales managers would get together. We do hiring in a block. And I was the only person of color there. And I didn't even realize it at first, but they would go around and they would look at all of the resumes. And if your resume hinted of an ethnicity or someone not like them, you got chucked. They didn't even look at the contents of it. They threw it out. And I'm like, wow. And so I used to go back and look at the ones that were thrown out. And I actually built my whole sales team off of the rejects. And we were the number one sales team in the company. But what Robin DeAngelis also said, which I find amazing, is when you say it's institutionalized, think of this for a second. Every parent wants the best for their child. They want them to go to the best schools. They want the best this. They want the best this all over. That's admirable. But one of the things they're subtly teaching their children, if I'm giving you the best and there aren't people of color and people who are different from you, they must not be the best because they're not here at the best. And so all of a sudden, if I've received the best and there are no black people, no Chinese people, whatever, maybe they're not the best. And that's what I say, subtle racism. And that's one of the reasons that people didn't understand affirmative action, because a lot of times people didn't have access to these places. And that was as great as hope. Unfortunately, the way we rolled it out didn't absolutely work the way that it was supposed to. But it also think about the history of this country. The cities were great. And when minorities and ethnic people came in, we moved to the suburbs. We didn't want you in our neighborhoods. And think about this as well just about every ethnicity that has come to this country has had some sort of racism against them. Remember, they wouldn't hire you if you're Italian, they wouldn't hire you if you're Irish. All of those ethnicities have experienced it. The things that baffles me is they have short-term memory because once they get over and it's not them anymore, they do the same thing to others that was done to them. And the church is a great example of that. And it didn't mean to do that, but you look at, look at Bridgeport, for example. At one point, we probably had... 25, 30 churches in Bridgeport, and they were all ethnic churches. Just go look at the stained glass windows. At Blessed Sacrament, they're Irish names. At this church, they're Italian. They didn't even mix way back then. And as the neighborhood changed, other ethnicities are in those churches. And the church didn't do that on purpose. It was just following the times of society. And I think that's where we've gotten into trouble because we still follow those trends. And right. even something as subtle as Bridgeport, it, it, the funny thing is, if you lived on the east side, you're probably in Stratford. If you lived in the North End, you're in Trumbull. If you lived on the West Side, you're in Fairfield because all those towns sprung up because they didn't want diversity. You know what's interesting too? I, I, Deacon Pat Tool, mm -hmm. whom you know very well, yeah. is a strong advocate of our addressing uh, the sin of racism in a very, very direct way. In fact, his doctoral work is on how one preaches effectively on this very question, which is tremendous. Anyway, he, uh, Deacon Pat just alerted me to something that again, I have seen hundreds and hundreds of times walking into the cathedral <laughs> and never alluded to it. And, and Father Reggie, you may know this too. He may have mentioned it to you as well. But when you walk into our cathedral, there is that beautiful portrait not portrait, but a beautiful uh, 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 rendering of St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. And yeah. St. Augustine it looks like a typical European bishop, right? But yeah. in fact, St. Augustine was a North African 
he was darker than me. <laughs> yeah, but well, we, but whoever made it, it never dawned on him. Right. And I passed it by hundreds of times, and I never, it never clicked that as beautiful as that is, it's not historically accurate. <laughs> well, part of that is our Eurocentric conditioning because all the artists and sculptors, they were the ones in charge of this, and they had the money to do it, so they made them look like themselves. And that's the biggest crime of them all. I mean, some of the first black bishops, the bishops were black, you know, by African tradition. And unfortunately, and it's a very tricky scheme because if we're all created in God's image and you're a person of color, you never see God portrayed in your image. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of times when you go to a truly ethnic church, you will see stained glasses and things of that nature in that image. One of the beautiful things for me is when I went to Africa, every place I went, Jesus was black. And what you see in some of my black Catholic churches, if they're all black, they have a darker Jesus and the apostles as well. And I should probably go to confession for this, but I know of quite a few churches that they inherited a church that had a Eurocentric corpus on the cross and over the years they continue to darken them up they use shoe polish every year when they're cleaning and they make jesus darker slowly but surely to represent the people there and they don't say anything but the people appreciate it and if you're a person of color and you go someplace and see a statue like that it does bring some relief to yourself but the other thing people should ask themselves is although we don't see god represented in our image we still stay because we believe in the bigger picture. And that's where there's a strong faith that people don't get. Right. You've kicked me out of your church and said I had to be in the basement, couldn't get married here. You put pictures up that don't look like me and I'm still here. My faith must be stronger than you could imagine. Um, allow me one other story. Sure. When I was a vicar general in the Diocese of Brooklyn, and as you know very well, because I've mentioned it many times when we gather as clergy, that one of the my principal duties was the parish reconfiguration. Mm. And I remember being in a church with had a, a very teeny population. Oh my gosh, it was down to almost like 30, 40 people on Sunday Mass. And I, I think I've told this story in a previous podcast, but it's very germane to our conversation today. And um, the, the ask was to merge with the neighboring parish. And there was an elderly black Catholic woman who stood up when I finished my presentation and she said to me, she said, first of all, Bishop, she says, I love you. Right. So please don't take this personally. <laughs> okay. So I knew I was waiting for it. I was bracing myself for what was coming. And she said, you probably don't know this, but what you are asking of me to do is really very hard. Not because of the geography or whatever else, but because when my forebears came to Brooklyn, and of course they're black, they were black, and went to the very parish that we are merging into, they were told to get out. And that's why we landed here and we built a community here. And I will go if you ask me to go, but you have to realize how difficult it is for me to do that. And again, I stood there like a big dope, standing with my mouth open, saying to myself, I should have known that, and I didn't. And, and what response can I possibly give now, all right, to the lived experience of a person who was effectively, her, her forebears were betrayed by that, those clergy and those leaders who divided the mystical body of Christ. Mm. Right? That is so powerful. Well, probably she's related to me because she's outspoken like me, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing, that there's a beautiful lesson there that we can all learn from. And I'm an example of it as well. You never know the wounds that another person's covered. Right. She right. may well have gotten over them and moved on. And sometimes our actions trigger a wound that we may have thought was covered and healed that's not healed. And I think for um, people of color in particular, I can only speak for them, there are a lot of wounds. And a lot of times we don't realize we're uncovering them, but there's a bright side to that as well. Despite those wounds, despite the history of this country, we're still a very loving and hopeful people. And that can't be any other thing other than Christ that's growing it together. But it also a lesson to all of us because you never know what someone's been through unless you've walked in their shoes. And there are some stories there. And one of the things that, um, you know, I loved about Dr. King was peace 
at any means necessary. We can't mm -hmm. do this violently because, and I say this a couple of all the time, when you're arguing to win an argument and you're arguing with someone you love, if you really want to win, you're going to hit below the belt and say something just to win that argument. And you may win that argument, but you hurt the person that you've loved. And you really haven't won, you lost. And a lot of times that's what our quick knee jerk re reactions do. We win the battle, but we've hurt so many other people. So we need to slow down and communicate better so that no one has right. to get hurt. Right. But also it's learning those stories. Like if you don't know my story, you don't know where my weaknesses are and where I'm hurting at, and you may trigger one. So there's two things that happen. I can snap at you in anger and you wouldn't understand where it's coming from, or I can educate you with love. And that's what that lady did. She educated with love. And I love that she said, I love you, because that's one of my favorite words. I try and use it in every homily. The word love needs to be there. No matter how we end, there's got to be some love in there. And I respect you, but I want to give you a little education. And that's exactly what I was saying when we need to communicate better. Right, that's right. where we grow. That's where so, we, you grew tremendously from that. Oh yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I, I, I the whole, the whole, my whole process, everything changed. It was yeah. just an amazing moment. All right. So two other things I want to mention to, to ask your, your thoughts on before we run out of time. The sure. first is you are going to Sacred Heart to give a talk on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So, Tuesday so what are you talking day. about? What are you talking about? Oh boy. I hope not to get into trouble and I hope not to fudge your office with a lot of phone calls, but I have to be authentically me. And um, it's happening on the 17th. So this will have aired by then. But I think what I was gonna tell people is I love our country. But again, some of the stuff that we talk about, our country has a bad history that it's never addressed. I don't believe in reparations because there's not enough money to pay for everything. But at some point, you have to acknowledge that you've hurt people. And if you don't acknowledge that, they can't be healed. And we also have to understand where why people are where they're at. And um, the talk is for Dr. King. And I will start it with what would Dr. King, I'm going to use Bishop Racton, some of his stuff. What would Dr. King say if he was here today alive? What did the world look like? Like, he'd be proud that in the play Hamilton, there's a multi-ethnic cast. That's progress. He'd be upset that we're still rioting in the streets for the same rights. And so I'm going to go in that area. But I also want to end in hope because it is a college campus. I want them to be engaged, to act peacefully, to make the change and not to settle for anything less. But I also want to bring some understanding to why some of the things happen, even if something as simple as this crazy um, COVID pandemic. A lot of people understand why a lot of black people don't want to take the um, vaccine. Well, a lot of people don't know about Tuskegee, what they did to our airmen and what they did to the women in testing. So there's just an inherent built-in distrust of the government and vaccines. If we can get over that, we can get more people vaccinated. It's not that they're being stubborn and obstinate. There's a history as to why they want to take a vaccine. Um, you talk about the policing, why so many communities are against policing. Think about this. In Reconstruction history, right after the Civil War, in Atlanta and the South, things were going good. People of color were getting elected to Senate and everything else, and they were prospering. But a small faction who felt output raised the KKK. They came in illegally, and the police who were there to protect them didn't let them. They joined the KKK and let them lynch and kill these people. So do you think you trust the police also if in your history they didn't do their job? So there's a lot of reasons, and I don't think people know the reasons. They just see things are wrong. The more we can get the history written properly, I'm not a fan of erasing history. You won't, you will repeat it and not learn from it, but I want to make sure we get an accurate description of what really happened. And I think that's, uh, we've seen great progress through all of this as well, because Juneteenth is now a holiday. Imagine that. Can you imagine being a slave and no one told you were free for almost a year? That's the kind of stuff that our history doesn't properly represent that needs to be there. Right, right, right. Yeah, because you can't build on anything other than the truth if right. you're going to build. Absolutely. You can't, you can't heal either. Right. Exactly right. Now, the other topic I wanted to, and this is one that's a bit of a lightning rod, um, because people have different opinions. And also, quite frankly, people don't have the level of knowledge always to be able to speak to it in a very definitive way. But the Black Lives Matters movement, Black Lives Matter, the movement, the organization, what it stands for, can you, for our listeners, and for me too, can you give us um, maybe a few minutes on what it is, what's the differences there, and how we should, as Catholics, um, approach the, the whole movement itself and, and what it's hoping to accomplish. 
That is the hotbed question of them all. And I must be honest with you and tell you, I was struck by it as well. I don't post a lot on social media, but if I see something that I think is positive and really well written, I'll post it. And I made the mistake of reposting something that was really black affirmative as far as community. I didn't see in the corner of it that it had the Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter movement is a whole different entity. It's a political group that some see as radical and they've done some radical things. And some of the things they believe in are really radical. That's the group that a lot of people who don't like that slogan, that's what they're relating to. A lot of people who are just the everyday you and me people who walk around, when we hear Black Lives Matter, yeah, well, all lives matter, Black Lives Matter. We've had these things happening now, so that's why we're saying Black Lives Matter. And then there's the other group that have attached this to all of the disrest going on with police and everything else. So the hard part is it a lot of times you don't know which category the person stands in. Are they the Antifa, the BLM over there? Are the people who are just saying it as a slogan? Are they the ones who have attached it to police, you know, crime and other things? So until we clarify and separate, it's going to be a very polarizing moment. And just to give you an example of how polarizing it is on that post that I had, if you know me and I hope people know me, I don't post that much, but I try and uplift. Every single person who'd never met me or seen me, oh, you're one of those BLM people. You're just propagating all of this hate and all of this riot. It was so bad that I had to pull the thing down off because I didn't want it to polarize. I put it up there to uplift people and to have a conversation. And it is endemic of what's going on with all of these talks. So many people in so many different camps and a lot of people think, oh, they're taking away something from me. Uh, and we get so lost in it. And the other thing that I think is happening is our own fault. We've said for a long time, well, we were at one point, I don't know, we've been named everything, slave, African-American, black, Negro, whatever. And now we're back to black. And a lot of people and minority is the one that I love the most. Why would someone be a minority? That term bothers me personally, because it's like if you're a minority shareholder, you don't have a voice and every connotation that it's used in, it's used in a negative way. But when you stop and you add up all of the numbers now, the people who want to keep someone in the minority, when you go by pure numbers, they're actually the smallest portion, because if you add Latino, black and all the others up that group is the smallest group. So technically they're now the minority, but they won't ever have that label, which is why we don't need it. And I think what's happening is goes back to what I said earlier. We're so busy separating and categorizing that we look for the differences and we don't see the commonalities in people. And that's where we get, if you're not like me, you lose. And that's why I said, go higher. All God's children, right. you can't lose there. So I'll tell you a funny story about that. I was in Ireland visiting friends and I said, you know, I don't like to travel, but am I going to be the only black person in Ireland? Because I really don't want the attention. And this was in the 90s. No, no, there'll be plenty of black people. Here. You'll see everyone. No, not at all. We were in Northern Ireland, County Down, Nuri. I couldn't find another black soul. But, you know, I live with it. I roll with the punches. I'm blessed. So I'm out walking because I don't sleep six o'clock in the morning. I said, I'll go down and get the paper. And I passed this little, beautiful, rosy cheek, redhead Irish girl. And she couldn't have been more than three or four. And she looks up at me and she goes, are you the black fellow from America? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And I'm thinking this little three-year-old doesn't know what a black fellow is or whatever. Or and a little girl in the most innocent, she goes, well, how'd you get that way? I'm like, whoa, it's awfully early for this. So I told the little girl, because I don't want to do harm. I said, well, the day God made me, he used a different crayon. Outside of that, we're all both like, she looked me up and down. She said, okay. And every time I see her after, hello, black fellow from America with love and endearment. And that was a beautiful moment for me because it was all right to be there then. But wouldn't it be nice where we see who we are, but we know who we are, but we celebrate those differences. We don't shame them. Right, right. You see, and, and again, that little girl proves the point. Yeah. That you're not born a racist Right. You become a racist. Absolutely. You, you, we're, we're born with the openness to grace. And it's, it's more than racism. It's all the sins of our lives. Absolutely. We, and the basic trust we have as children, we unlearn and then we have to relearn in our spiritual life, even when it comes to God. So our children are our most precious commodity. And you ask yourself, why are we putting them in these circumstances, environments and circ and situations where they're learning stuff that 
is detrimental to them, to their neighbor, and they're going to have to unlearn the rest of their lives. Can't we do yeah. a better job? <laughs> well, I think the young generation's doing it because, you know, when we were kids, you didn't have interracial marriages, and now they're very common. And we're at some point, there might just be one race only because the way things are going. And what I see walking out there, there's so many mixtures that you can't separate it anymore. And that may be a good thing because the younger generation is acutely aware of that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But don't we have an, an, the one thing that I always tell people, and it is one of the greatest blessings I have in the world. In being me, Father Reggie Norman, I get to operate in all kinds of worlds and functions. I can go to a white event. I can go to a black event. I can go to South. I can go North. There's not many places I can't go, but with that ability comes a responsibility and boy, oh boy, am I in the right place for it because I have to be a bridge to all of those communities. And here we are in Bridgeport making bridges, bringing people together. That is so important of all of us. Absolutely. And you know what? And Father Reggie, not because you're on the podcast, but you really do a remarkable job of creating bridges. Like I said at the beginning, with young adults, young people, the the communities that you serve, you really are. And I admire you for many reasons, but your your openness, your honesty, and your frankness. (laughs) I don't know how you get that. Well, you know, it's great. People always consider, they say, oh, he's mad, he's angry. No, I'm one of the happiest people. Anger is not a word I would attribute to me. What I operate on when I see injustices, that's when I get upset. Yeah. You could probably say a lot of things about me and I'm, I'll let it roll off my shoulder. I don't care. But at the same token, if I see you saying something, the bishop is my friend, he's my, you know, my pastor, and they're saying it irregularly, I'll speak up and argue on your behalf, even though you're not there, before I went on my own. And people don't understand that's a passion. Where I'm passionate at, I'm vocal about it. And at the end of the day, I love everyone. And I wake up hoping to bring love in the world. And I think we all need to do it better. Am I perfect? Of course not. I got a lot of work to do. I'm still a work in progress. But the beauty of it is God's given us enough time and the right tools to do that work. If we would all do the work at improving ourselves and our community, life would be a lot better. The only thing I have to say to that is amen. <laughs> well done. Well, thank you for being our shepherd and allowing us to do that, because believe me, there are other places where I'd be highly suppressed. <laughs> what a conversation this has been. I mean, it is uh, just like the name of the show. Uh, both of you are very frank and it's been wonderful. Father Reggie Norman has been here with an important discussion on race, seeing people as people as beloved children of God. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We're going to take one more break and Bishop uh, Frank will be back to answer a listener question. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So Excellency, here's a a question uh, that came in um, that we tried to answer, but the technology, as we mentioned at the top of the show, kind of derailed us a little bit, but I want to make sure this person gets their answer. So here's the question. Mm -hmm. Excellency, Mm -hmm. I try not to watch movies with immorality. Is it okay to watch horror movies? And how about movies with a lot of violence? Okay. So this is take two on the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Bottom line is it's always context, right? Um, Certainly for those who are younger, and impressionable and cannot differentiate or nuance, then they should not be exposed to this sort of material, right? They would not be able to understand it and process it in such a way that would not leave either false impressions or even do them, you know, some psychological harm. But for example, for an adult, you can't, for example, talk about Dunkirk and the heroism without understanding the the, the horror and the violence that occurred there, right? So in many ways, uh, violence for violence sake is gratuitous and never, there's not a great value there, but violence in the context that explains something more noble is, is inevitable. If you're going to speak of the nobility, you have to speak of the context. So it's all about the context and the age of the person involved. That would be my answer. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although there are some things that just should not be watched. I oh, mean, absolutely. Right. Because it's but, gratuitous. Yes. Right. So yes. when you chop people, say like those horror movies where you're chopping people up, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> There's no redeeming value to that. <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, if you have a question for Bishop Frank, please send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. 
Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And as we do every week, we would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Father Reggie Norman, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for such an important conversation. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. And Bishop, thank you for your great words and your leadership. You allow us to be us. So we represent you, but you give us the freedom to do the right thing. Father Reggie, thank you. You're doing a great job and you're in my prayers and you have my support. So let's pray, shall we? Yes. Yes. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversation, for the time we've spent together. But we ask that your Holy Spirit continue to guide us, those who are listening to this podcast, all those whom they love and serve, that we may always be faithful, we always may be joyful, that we always, always may do what is your holy will. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Steve, Father Reggie, you take care of yourself. God bless you. Steve, I'll see you soon. Yes, thanks to you both. 